All right, church, uh, let's turn to John chapter 15, verse 18. Uh, John 15, uh, verse 18. And we'll read through to uh, verse 25. We're all, we're all turned and all, all okay? All right. Well, as our custom, let's stand and read the Word of God. Starting at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works which no one else had done, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, I am uh, just um, overwhelmed every week as we read your word to see that you just keep changing weekly on us the categories of life in which you introduce to us. Uh, we, as we, we walk through lives on a daily basis, week in, week out, year in, year out, uh, we just love that your word has something to say about every category of life that we face from dealing with forgiveness, anger, uh, conflict resolution, finances, parenting, whatever it is, Lord, you have something to say. And today we have, you have something to say to us in terms of what it is to truly be a follower of you, how we can expect to be treated if we're fully committed to you and the way we relate to the world. And uh, I'm just grateful that you have instruction and you have words of hope and encouragement and reality for us. And may we embrace them in our lives. And we look forward to our time together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, when we last looked at John... Uh, we saw the disciples being recipients of a wonderful promise that Jesus made to them. He told them um, that he was going to make them friends. They were slaves, but now they become his friends. But this is a friendship that was defined differently. Like when we think of friendship in our context, we think of BFFs. Right, Jaden? <laughs> That's your language, BFF. For those of you who don't know what that means, ask Jaden. But we have BFFs, and that's, not, that's the way we define friendship, right? Best friends forever. And uh, Jesus, although was very close to them, that's not exactly what he primarily had in mind by the word friendship. Uh, we saw that friendship for him was based on two factors. In verse 14, we saw that the first thing was it was in relationship to obedience to him. He said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Secondly, he also said that friendship was... Uh, with him was in relationship to how much of the commands of Jesus they had learned from him. They had been revealed God's mind, and because of that, they were now to become his friends. He says in 15, uh, All things I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. 
So they were friends because they had heard the mind of God, had been revealed the mind of God, and they were uniquely privileged in Israel because no one else had received that kind of teaching before. But this was a message, though, that although it came with great privilege, also came great responsibility. And in verse 16, the, this was to be the responsibility. He says, you, I've appointed you that you would go and bear fruit, that you would go and bear fruit so that your fruit would remain. So again, this was not to be a private thing. A thing. They were not to take the, the commandments of Jesus and keep it private, like a, an internal faith. This was to be a faith that was to be shared with the world. It was to be a public declaration of who Jesus was and what he'd done. And anyone they crossed paths with in the world, they were to make this message known. They were chosen to tell the world about God's love for them. But Jesus also knew the disciples needed to, to be prepared. Because even though they were coming to the world with a message of love, the world's response was going to be one of hatred towards them. And what was unique about this hatred was it had nothing to do with them personally. This hatred had nothing to do with who they were. It was all to do with their intimate connection and association with Jesus Christ. And we pick this up in verse 18 and 19. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, and because of this choosing, the world hates you. Again, it's an important observation, I think, off the top to note that the hatred towards the disciples was not going to be personal. It wasn't because of the food preferences they had that they were hated. It wasn't because of the musical tastes that they had that they were hated. It wasn't like because the sports teams in, in their area they were cheering over were, were uh, different than the world's whatever, right? It wasn't like they preferred the jumping Jonas over the Nazareth Nephilim or anything like that, right? So their hatred was purely because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. And when the disciples initially heard this, I would suggest that they weren't totally surprised by this considering what's happened to them with Jesus in the last three years. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Jesus walks into a synagogue in Nazareth, and, is, and he preaches in his hometown the gospel. What's the response? He gets dragged out of the synagogue, led to an edge of a cliff, and they attempt to throw him off the edge of the cliff. First, first couple of weeks in ministry. They also witnessed him on more than one occasion, have his life in danger with the Pharisees attempting to stone him. They saw that on more than one occasion. They saw Jesus and the disciples having to flee for safety from certain places because life was getting too hot to handle in certain areas. I think in particular, he couldn't stay in Jerusalem anymore for fear of the Jews. And in John chapter 11, when Jesus wanted to go back to Jerusalem after all the persecution they faced, Thomas said something very interesting. Thomas said this, if you remember, he said, let us also go back to Jerusalem so that we may die with him. Okay, here's a disciple recognizing that life with, as a follower of Jesus entailed danger. If he was prepared to die for Christ, then we, this, was a, this was a ministry that they had, and a life they lived with him that came with a lot of animosity. So again, Jesus' declaration that they hated him was not probably a huge surprise to them. However, at the same time, up to this point, as far as we can see, can see from Scripture, all, that, all of that animosity had primarily been directed towards him. The disciples weren't actually, as we can see, targeted by all the other people. 
it was mostly Jesus, and it had been just towards him. And so Jesus was telling these disciples, this is about to change, boys. When I go, you're going to become the targets. You're going to become the targets, and you're going to follow in my footsteps. People are going to hate you now. And so Jesus wanted to give them preparation for their future ministry roles in terms of how they were going to be treated. And we get a glimpse of this in, in 16 verse 2. Look at 16.2. We'll come to this next time we preach. But he says, They will make you... They will make you outcasts from the synagogue. But an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. I'd love to be the fly on the wall when Jesus told them that they were going to be killed for their, for their uh, following of him. I wonder what their faces would have looked like when they said that. I mean, imagine sitting in that room and you've, you've faced almost no animosity, but the person you're facing, following had faced that animosity, and he turned to you all and said, by the way, you're going to be kicked out of the church and they're going to kill you for it. I wonder what would go through your mind and what your face looked like when he told you that. But Jesus made it clear to them, suffering for his name's sake was going to be something that was expected. It was going to be a new norm for these men as followers of his. Now that's an important lesson for us as a church. I think sometimes as Christians we fall into this happy clappy form of Christianity. You know the happy clappy kind. Jesus has come to save me so he can make my life awesome. He's going to make my life awesome here and now. He's come to make all my relationships better. He's come to increase my standard of living. He's come to take my bodily hurts like my physical ailments that I have and make them all better. He's going to elevate me at work. He's going to make me have influence in my society and my culture and I'm going to be well liked because I love Jesus Christ. Well, it's not that Jesus can't and won't do that at certain times, but that's not the hallmark of a Christian life. That's total garbage if you believe that's the way uh, Christ came to be in relationship with us. He makes it very clear if we are truly living a life committed to Christ, we're not signing up for a, leave of, a life of ease and comfort. That's not what we're signing up for. It's a life where we'll be hated by the world. It's a life of suffering for the name of Jesus. Now, Scripture speaks repeatedly about this. <clears throat> repeatedly. Um, and I wish the happy, clappy form of Christianity would read these verses and take these into serious consideration. So I've asked people in the church to just read these off um, for me. Listen to the theme about suffering for the sake of Jesus Christ. Jaden, can you read 1 Thessalonians 3, 2 to, 2 to 4? And we send Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourself know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. Right? We are destined for it, Paul says. I told you this in the past, now you're facing it. You shouldn't be surprised. We pre-told you this is what it was going to be like as a, as a life following Jesus Christ. Um, Sheldon, Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Okay. Uh, Tori, 1 Peter 4.1. Um, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Kelly, 1 Peter 4.12 and 13. 
Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that you also, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. And Josie, 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ, Jesus will suffer persecution. So wow, eh? All different books, uh, different authors, all stating the same thing. It's pretty clear that if you sign up to be a Christian and uh, want to follow Jesus Christ, that the world will hate you because he hated him before. <laughs> it's kind of fitting what Paul says in Timothy, that uh, all those who are godly will be persecuted, considering that Jesus' Jesus's next words to the disciples in verse 20. He says this, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I mean, Jesus' illustration to the disciples was obvious, and I think it's obvious to us. And a master in the Jewish culture would never be expected to receive worse treatment than a slave. Right? If, you're, if you're a slave in the Jewish culture, you are getting the front of the of the of the force and the master is like resting um, nice and easy. Here Jesus says um, he is the master and he's going to face persecution. So therefore if the master is going to take it, why would you think as a slave that you're not going to take it as well? You're not going to escape the inevitable if your master is suffering. And we see this at the beginning of Acts, right? <laughs> beginning of Acts, the disciples go into ministry. If you watch the whole first, uh, you look at the first like eight to ten chapters, and the disciples all of a sudden are facing a difficulty that they never faced in the three years with Jesus in ministry. So from the time Jesus declares this, to like literally 50 days later or two months later, like their life radically changed. Peace, peace, peace. Within two months, bang, things just completely changed. They're getting thrown in jail, flogged, beaten, uh, you know, and all sorts, running for their lives, all sorts of things. Now it's interesting in 16.2 that Jesus promises them death. Because the New Testament doesn't record death for any of the disciples. We don't find any martyrdoms of any of the people in the, in the book. But we do know from church history that all the disciples were eventually martyred for their faith except John. John who wrote this book, who also wrote 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, who also wrote Revelation, was never martyred. But when he wrote Revelation, he was exiled by the Romans to this, the island of Patmos. So he was put in, like, you remember Tom Hanks in the movie, what's that called? Castaway. castaway. John was castaway. Except he didn't talk to a guy named Wilson, he talked to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he kept saying through that whole time. Anyway, that wasn't in my notes, so. <laughs> I couldn't help it. <laughs> so that's what the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance. <laughs> Things of importance. <laughs> if you guys had bananas, I guess I'd be pelted by now. Anyway. Tomatoes. Tomatoes, right? Right. <laughs> but what's interesting is like, so the disciples are promised persecution, promised hatred, they receive it. Now, this of course extends to us as well. And it's interesting that throughout church history, we see the persecution and hatred of Christians. Now, these stats came from John MacArthur's commentary, and it's uh, quite staggering. Um, it's estimated that in all of church history, so 2,000 years, starting from Jesus to now, 2,000 years, about 70 million Christians have been martyred for the profession of faith. 70 million. Canada has about 30 million, I think, or maybe 35, I don't know. 
So it's like double Canada in the last 2,000 years been martyred for their faith. The crazy thing, here's what's nuts about the whole thing, is that most of these have been martyred in the last century. So of 17 million people, 45 million have been killed in the last 100 years. The 20th century has been the most bloodiest century in all of the world's history. And guess who the predominant killers of the Christians have been? Muslim. Muslim and communists. When everyone ever tells you, like, don't get duped by this, like, don't be shy to stand up for God in this. If a Muslim ever tells you, as long as a religion of peace, tell them they're, they're absolutely full of it. They are not a religion of peace. They might quote the Quran and say, uh, oh, we have verses about peace. That doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. They, they, that's not the agenda of Islam. Don't be duped for that lie. They're not a... In, I heard, uh, I remember watching uh, just in the news about three weeks ago, that woman who was uh, hurt by ISIS. I forget her name. She was a young girl that was basically lost her face or something. And she went to the parliament and she was made an honorary Canadian. She was made an honorary Canadian by Justin Trudeau. It was on the news. I watched it. And she got up and talked about religion, like Islam, and about that, you know, being a religion of peace and stuff. And, you know, our parliament's all in agreement. They're not. They're not. That's not true. Anyway, that's the interesting thing about uh, the persecution history of, of the Christians. But, but on average then, 100,000 people are killed every year since 1990. 100,000 a year since 1990. So when people say the world's getting to be a better place, that's not true if you're a Christian. It's not true. Now this is hard for us to relate to because it's not happened to us yet. But just because it hasn't happened doesn't mean that we have not received persecution and we're not hated. Ultimately, it comes in the form of physical violence. But to say that you're, you can't turn around and say, well, this doesn't apply to me because I never lost my life. It does. Hatred and persecution can come in other forms, and I want to share those with you. The Bible actually talks about them. Um, in Hebrews chapter 10, it says there that the, the people of the, of the church there, their properties were seized and, uh, and taken from them. So um, what's interesting is like, as because of the connection to Jesus, they're coming in and taking their homes from them and there's nothing they could do. They didn't do anything. It was just a persecution. Uh, we can see in marriage persecution. 1 Corinthians 7, what was happening? It, he has to give instructions to the, unbelie to the believers because their unbelieving spouses are leaving the marriage. Why? It wasn't because things were going uh, wrong before. It's because of their connection to Christ. And these Corinthians want to pursue their lives still in their pagan religion. And the Christian spouse is going, I want to follow God. And so they're getting divorced and getting abandoned because of their faith. We see in 1 Peter chapter 2, the Christians are being unjustly treated at work. Uh, Peter has to give instructions about uh, slaves obeying their masters. Why? Because these masters are being unruly towards them because of their faith. We see in 1 Peter, uh, the government authorities being putting the pressure on these people and Paul, or Peter has to tell them about how to relate to the government. Why? Because the government is trying to squash them because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. So you can see it applies to us too. We can be rejected at school. We can be rejected at the locker room. I mean, if, someone, if all you have to do to fight your teacher is when they start teaching biology 10, 20, and 30 and telling you about evolution and the Big Bang and the dinosaurs, you're in for it. You want to be persecuted? You stand up for God in the science classroom about what, what, where the origins of life are and you'll take it on the chin. You try standing up in our culture for homosexuality 
in terms of like speaking out against it. You'll take it on the chin. You start, you start living out of faith completely uh, uh, committed to Lord Jesus Christ in a faith that thinks differently than Christianity, you will face it from your family. You know what? Even within a Christian family, if, if, if your family is like is Christian but barely on, like just sort of not really committed, um, but you start to follow Christ more and more and more, even within your own family you'll receive persecution because you think that you're going overboard in your commitment to Christ. <laughs> You'll be gossiped about at work. When you don't take shortcuts, when you work your butt off and everyone else is taking longer coffee breaks, and when everyone wants you to lie to the boss and you won't lie, or lie for another coworker to protect them and you won't do it, you'll take it on the chin. I mean, there's, there's other ways to be persecuted and hated within the family, or within the Christian walk. And the list goes on. But here's the point. All of this constitutes a form of persecution and hatred. And why? It all stems back to our connection to Jesus Christ. And he re, re, uh, highlights this in verse 21. Look at this in 21. It says, All these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Again, it's not personal. It's because of their connection to Jesus that all these things will happen to them. But it's also for another reason. It wasn't just because of the connection to him. It's because of their absolute ignorance for God. Look at 21 again. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. So it's not only in connection to Jesus, it's an absolute ignorance of God. Ignorance of God. Now while it's true in general that the world is ignorant to who God truly is, it's the people that Jesus first and foremost, foremost has in mind here was his own people. So he's actually speaking primarily here about the Jews. And that's clear in 22 through 24. Look what he says here. He says, uh, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sinned. But now that they have, they have no excuse for their sin, he who hates me hates my father also. And if I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sinned. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. Uh, Jesus has made some interesting comments here that I want to help you work through. Um, you see here, he says in verse 22, um, he says, uh, they would have no, not, not, sorry, they would not have sin. And in verse 24, he says, they would not have sin. What he's saying here is, he's not saying that the Jews were sinless. He's not saying, I don't see them as sinless people. He was rather speaking of a specific sin. They have, their specific sin was their willful rejection of him, despite the full revelation that they had been given. Right? Jesus had not only spoken to them about who he was and revealed God's truth, he authenticated his message through miracles. So again, he's not saying here, I see that Jews are sinless. He's saying they have sin. They have this major sin on their back, which is called rejection of the Messiah. He had come to his own people, and yet they had rejected him. Despite the fact that he, he told them who he was, and he authenticated it through miracles. I mean, he told them over and over he was God's son, he was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of Old Testament scripture. And he demonstrated through the raising of Lazarus from the dead, the restoring of the blind man, and feeding of 20,000 people with five fish and two loaves of bread, um, that, he was, um, that he was God in the flesh. But they willfully rejected over and over. And that's why their sin remained upon them. So because of this rejection, Jesus makes a staggering claim about them in verse 23 and 24. He actually says to reject Jesus was to hate God. Did you see that? He says, 
he says in verse 23, he who hates me hates my father also. And verse 24, but now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. I mean, this is crazy talk if you're a Jew. You don't hate God. The Gentiles hate God. You love God, right? If you're a Jew, you're God's favorite people. You were rescued out of Egypt. You had Abraham as your, as your uh, bloodline. He, he chose to dwell amongst you uh, in the temple um, and, and when they took over the land. Uh, he'd given you the land of Israel. You were God's favorite people. It was the Gentiles that hated God. It wasn't you. But Jesus said, listen, I'm God's full revelation. If you hate me, I can actually tell you that you hate God as well. Because I am God's full revelation in the flesh. So Jesus was saying, we're a package deal. You can't reject me and then say you love God. It doesn't work that way. And that's a great message for us, again, in our evangelism and in Opertokes. When people talk about God and who he is and how much they love God and all this thing about God, his name is Jesus Christ for Christians. And we have to be bold enough to say that and declare that when we talk to people. There's an important lesson I want to bring out in here that I think is, that we can't miss. And that Jesus is saying this to the Jews, and he's saying this to us as well. To whom more knowledge and experience of God's truth is given, there's more accountability. You see that? To, to whom more knowledge and experience is given, there is more accountability. There's an expectation from God for a response. I mean, he says, again, to the Jews, if I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin because I spoke to them. Again, they have no excuse because I demonstrated my miracles in front of them. But what he's saying is there's an accountability to the revelation that you have. And God uses that as a measurement for judgment. He uses a measurement. I remember in a Bible study... Uh, I think, I'm pretty sure that I was, like, Laurel and Pat had just joined it. This is back in Chris and Diane Butler's house about eight, nine years ago. Um, I remember sitting, I remember Janice Metcalf, for those of you who know Jason and Janice, we're all part of this group, and this, I learned something new that I never knew before. Um, we were going through this passage in the Bible, in Luke, and I learned for the first time that God judges people differently. He judges people differently. In other words, you've heard it, you know, in the Christians, people always say, well, all sins equal to God. It's actually not true. <laughs> it's all equal to God in terms of the cross being necessary, but it's not equal in terms of how God judges in the end times. He actually keeps a list, and whatever his standards are for, for judgment, he actually uses, he hands out to different degrees of punishment. And we see this over and over in the scriptures. And I want to just share two with you to help you understand God differently, if you haven't thought about this before. Look at Luke 10, 8. Actually, I think I might have the wrong. Let me just double check my cross-reference here. Yeah. It's actually, yeah, 10, 8 to 14 is right. Okay, he says this. He's setting up the 70 disciples on a mission. And it's to preach the kingdom of God. It's in the early days of his ministry, in the first year, he's sending them out in a mission. He has a message for the disciples. He says this, uh, Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick. And say to them, The kingdom of God has come near you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into the streets and say, Even the dust of your city which clings to your feet we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that is the kingdom of God has come. And I say to you, it will be more tolerable in the day of Sodom than for that city. Now you think about that declaration. 
Okay, what was Sodom and Gomorrah known for? What kind of immorality? Just say it up, call it a spade a spade. Sexual. What kind specifically? Yeah, and violent. It was probably rape and, and all that type of stuff. Rampant, violent, raping homosexuality. And he says, I've come to this city in, in Israel who do not practice those things. You're, you, are, like, you want to obey the law of God. You, you know that's only for Gentile uh, think, and thinking and living. It's more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the judgment than for you. Why? Because Jesus was there in the flesh and they would not accept his teaching. They would not accept him as Messiah. Now you think about that. This is going to have a massive implication later on. Then he says, following forward, Woe to you, Chorazam, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which recurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon and the judgment than for you. Now he's not saying that Sodom and Gomorrah and Tyre and Sidon aren't going to be judged. He's just saying there's a different degree of judgment for those who have known the full revelation of God and rejected it. Now look at, uh, this is Hebrews, this is, to the, uh, this is another passage for us. Dear friends, if we are deliberately continue sinning after we've received knowledge of the truth, there is no longer any sacrifice that will cover those sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God, have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common unholy, and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. These are Christian people in the context of Hebrews that have once been saved, have already heard the message of Jesus Christ, and now they've rejected, willfully rejected him and start basically living a life contrary to the message they once believed there's a greater degree of punishment. It's interesting. We're going to talk about more of this in the, in the lessons and application. But let's get back to the passage now in John and finish with the last verse. Jesus then has just proclaimed to the Jews that they were going to be held accountable for their willful rejection of him. But he also wanted the disciples to understand that this rejection came as no surprise to God. He wasn't shocked at all. Look at verse 25. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Now these are, this quote comes from two Psalms, Psalm 35:19 and 69:4. This was David speaking about himself and that he just was crying out to God saying, Why are my enemies mistreating me without just cause? I've done nothing and yet I kept getting mistreated. And Jesus turns, on, turns around and says, By the way, that was a prophetic. That was not only about David, that was prophetic to talk about me. <laughs> David was getting rejected by his own people without just cause, and so am I. And so if David, who was the king of Israel, who was a mere man, could be hated by his enemies, it would make sense then that Jesus, who would come from heaven, who was God's son, would then be hated without just cause as well. Well, I got thinking about this, and I thought, why in the world, if Jesus came as love, if Jesus came as love for the whole world, why in the world would anyone hate him so much and then hate us so much when we come with a message of love to the world as well? Why would that be? Why were the disciples hated? Why were Christians throughout history hated? And why us now? I don't know if you remember this, but in John 3.19, back in the first couple years ago when we first started John, Jesus said this, This is the judgment that the light has come into the world 
And men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Why do people hate Jesus? Because they have a way of life that they want to continue to live in because they love it. And when you come as a Christian and you say, by the way, Jesus has a different life for you to follow, they do not want to hear it. They love, people love sin. Let's be honest, as a Christian, you love it too. You love it. Because when, when you have the opportunity to do it, it just draws and you want to go there, want to go there. And the Holy Spirit comes in and says, by the way, I have another alternative for you and how to respond now. And you fight that because you have this love for sin. But, G, but, but God's got a different way for you. So, so again, uh, when, you come, when you come with a message and Jesus did it, you can't live this way, you can't live this way, you can't live this way. And we come with that same message, you are going to be hated by the world. And this is where I think we have to be very smart in how we present the gospel. Jesus, it's true, Jesus said, come as you are, but he didn't say, stay as you are. <laughs> Jesus said, yes, come as you are. I can handle any sin that you have, and I can handle any person's life. No one can, can do anything that I can't redeem. However, he never said, stay as you are. He says, now you, as a love expression to me, you need to change your life. You need to change your life. I died for sin, so why would you be allowed to continue to live in it? I died so that I could give you a new way of life. A new way of life. Tough as Christians in our context, your, your biggest issue and my biggest issue in, in our culture is this, is that everybody here is really good. Everybody here is awesome, so good. Morality is like up through the roof. And you have to tell people that they're not right with God and their life isn't good. We're too polite as Canadians to, we say sorry for everything, and, and man, you, but we can't say sorry when you call someone out for their lives. Now just so you know, we're not going to get into it today, but there is a way to talk to someone with gentleness, so you don't just start with a gun and just shoot everybody and tell them they're not morally right. This is not a way of the master stuff. We, we do it with gentleness and respect for the individual. But that's another sermon. But here's the thing, I was, I was thinking, you know, I, 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 these are great books, Answers in Genesis by uh, Ken Ham. And so he gives a whole thing here about why evolution is, not a, is an impossibility, absolute impossibility. And I'll, read, and I'll read you this. If real science supports the Bible's claims about an eternal creator God, then why isn't this readily accepted? Great question. Science actually proves that evolution's an impossibility. You know, I'm gonna, if you ever wanna talk about that, we can sit down and talk about that. But he proves it. And then says, so why in the world would anybody who's a scientist then not readily accept this teaching? Here's a great answer. The crux of the matter is this. If one accepts there's a God who created us, then that God also owns us. If this God is the God of the Bible, he owns us and thus has a right to set the rules by which we must live. And people, by nature, don't want to be under anybody's authority. I sure didn't. Prior to being a Christian, there's no way. My biggest issue was trusting authority, and I wanted to be the authority in my own life. That's why we all have testimonies. Our testimonies are basically this. I wanted to be the master and domain of my universe, and at one point in life, I came to the realization that I couldn't be anymore. That's really the Christian testimony. There's much more to be said on this, uh, and I'm interested in having these conversations in the dialogue. But let's just quickly look at three main lessons. Here's the first lesson. 
As followers of Jesus, it is normal to expect hatred and persecution from the unbelieving world. It's normal. That's why I like Peter's quote. That I forget who read it, but someone read, I think it was Callie, read about Peter. He says, don't be surprised at the fire ordeal that comes upon you. Don't be surprised by it. You shouldn't expect that. And again, we shouldn't expect it either. Or we should expect it. The more you and I conform to the image of Jesus Christ, the more you'll feel that hatred. And what I mean by conform to the image, the more you walk in obedience to the Lord, the more you feel it. You discipline your kids God's way, you'll feel it from the world and your own family. You, uh, you go into like um, work and you're told to have a certain work ethic or, or to be tempted to gossip and stuff and you don't do that, you'll feel it. You go to handle money God's way, you'll feel it from people around you who think you're a moron. Um, you, you know, you, the more you can feel to the image of Christ, the more you'll feel it. And all of us know this. All of us have probably had parts in our lives where we've been more like lackadaisical in our faith, and then we become more committed. Usually when we're in that lackadaisical state, we fit in with the world. We don't feel the pressure. We don't have any tension in those areas. But the more we, as soon as we commit to Christ, you'll feel the tension from the world. They'll persecute you and they'll hate you. So perhaps the question we need to ask ourselves is, when was the last time we were hated? If we've never been hated, then that's a gut check for us to know if we're even Christians. If we've been hated, but it's been a long, long time, then probably we've been sitting on a shelf and it's time for us to get off the shelf and get active in our faith. Second lesson. Followers of Jesus should not take hatred from the world personally, but understand their hatred is actually directed towards Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we should not take hatred from the world personally, but understand that their hatred is actually directed towards Him. Look at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it's hated me before you. Verse 20. Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Verse 21. All these things they will do to you for my name's sake. Everything is in connection to Jesus. Everything is in connection to Jesus. And I, and I, love, I love this in Acts, in Acts 5.40. These guys got it. These disciples, I love it. Peter denied Jesus three times before the crucifixion for fear of his own life because he didn't associate that with following Jesus. They were to victory over the Roman people and victory... Uh, like over maybe unbelieving Jews and so on. And here he is scared to associate with Jesus. In five verse, chapter 5, verse 40, he says this. He just gets beaten. He just gets beaten. Not all the disciples get beaten. They get flogged. He says this. Um, uh, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from the house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching as the Christ. Here's the thing. They were rejoicing. They got to suffer for what? For who? For his name. They weren't taking it personally. They're like, I get it now. Of course I'm suffering like this because Jesus suffered. I'm not greater than my master. This makes total sense as a Christian. 
This really helps you, by the way. It should help you. It really helps me in, in, in talking with non-Christians. Do you know why? Because, okay, I, I have a history of fear and rejection, okay? My, one of my, my biggest thing is I want to be loved by people, and it's the number one thing that will shut me up in a spiritual conversation. Some people are awesome. Like, they, they don't care if they get lambasted, they can take it. That's not me. I have this insatiable need to be liked by people. So, Christ challenges my biggest life commandment. He challenges me the greatest because the very thing I want the most will not happen. And so I have this choice to make every time I enter in a conversation. Even when I go talk to that guy that I told you about, uh, Tyrell Museum, when I get, my heart was pounding as I chased around looking for a staff member. It wasn't, I wasn't going in there with this excitement and joy. I was like, I, but I have to test my faith and maybe open up a door for him to think differently. But it was not my first preference. But I could not obey, disobey the Spirit's leading for me to do this. But I'll, but I'll say this. Here's what's really cool now. Is that when I get rejected and when someone tells me I'm stupid or thinks that the cool thing is now I don't walk away going, oh, I feel so bad about what happened to me. I'm like, of course I got rejected because that's what it is to be a follower of Christ. They're not rejecting me. They hate him. Here's all it takes for me to be accepted by the world. Just deny Christ and his way of life. As soon as I do that, I'll be in. How do I know? Because I used to live like that way and the world loved me and accepted me. So again, all, when you go through, if you're worried about persecution, you're worried about hatred, you're worried about it, just know and give this in your, put this in your mind that it's because of your connection to Him they hate you, not because of who you are as a person. And that should give you confidence because you know that He was hated first. They wouldn't have hated you before that, but they hate you now. I lost a friend in the gym over this, uh, a woman that used to always... Uh, She'd be the first person at our, 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 you know, our, our extracurricular parties that the gym would hold. And she's one of the biggest supporters. She supported me in the gym for 10 years. We, I get into a spiritual conversation on the floor with another gym member. She overhears, comes in and joins the conversation. We end up going, she joins us and now there's three of us talking. And uh, she didn't like anything I said. Uh, then I get an email from her two days later telling her how I've offended her and etc etc. I wrote back apologizing for the parts of that, some of the parts, not all the parts, but some of the parts, maybe in the del deliverance of it. Um, she accepts the apology and then I walk into a coffee shop with, um, I remember Laurel was there, Callie, and Stuart and Laura, and she says to me, she basically told me she wanted me to leave the building. I had a staff party for the end of the year. Um, when I closed the gym down, uh, actually, after, yeah, closing the gym, we had a staff, we had a party for the clients and for the staff. She never came. She came to every other function before then. So all it took was one conversation of 20 minutes in the flow after 10 years of supposed friendship, and she would not come to my party, and she would not. She told me to leave the coffee shop. One conversation, 10 years of supposed friendship. But you know what? I don't take it personally. It doesn't bug me. Because it had nothing to do with me. She loved me for 10 years. Why? Because we never had spiritual conversations. All of a sudden, I t call her out in her life that she can't live this way, and etc. and think this way, and she says, I'm done with you. I don't take it personally. She hates me because of my connection to Jesus. Deny him, I'm back in her life as full friend. That's how easy it is. It's lesson number three. Final lesson. On the day of judgment... God will take into account an individual's degree of revelation and the response to it as a means of punishing sin fairly. On the day of judgment, God will take into account an individual's degree of revelation 
the response to that revelation, and then will punish fairly and accordingly. This was a really good for me to learn this week in a further cementing way, and I'll tell you why, how this applies, uh, uh, applies practically in your own walk. How many of you have heard this or had this conversation? I don't really love, I don't want, trust God or think your Christianity has anything to offer. Why? Well, I heard that you say that if you don't believe in Jesus, you're going to hell. Well, what kind of a loving God is that when people who don't hear about Jesus are going to go to hell? I'm not believing in that kind of God. You're trying to tell me that people who've never heard the name are going to get sent to hell, and you're trying to say that unless I hear it, I, I've got no chance? You've heard that. You've had those conversations or heard that argument, haven't you? That's some of, that's some of people's biggest objections. I'm not going to trust a God who you have to hear about Jesus to go to hell. That's, that's not fair to punish someone who's never heard the message. It's not fair. Well, here's the cool answer after learning this this week. God takes that into consideration. It'll be more tolerable for you than Sodom. Why? Degree of revelation, degree of punishment. So here's what God's saying. Yeah, your very argument that you're trying to base rejection of God for is God takes into consideration. If you haven't heard the message, the punishment will look different for someone who has heard the message. So we know that God's a fair judge. So therefore, what's your problem then? What's your problem then? Here's, but here's, what, here's where the, the coin flips. I would say to that person at that point, but here's the problem, man. Because he takes that into consideration, what about you now? Because now you do have the revelation. You have got the truth. I've just told you. So now actually, you have no excuse before God because you've been given a revelation that you never had before. So God now uses that as a new standard of judgment based on the things that you've now known. So instead of that should put fear in your heart and make you reconsider that there's a creator out there, you're, not, you're now at a higher level of accountability because I've just told you truth. Well, there's a lot to be said here and a lot been said. And uh, I'd love to hear what you have to say in the, in the dialogue. So let's uh, have a time now to discuss uh, any objections or supports, uh, supporting uh, thoughts in the, in the text.